The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Lord, thank you for this, uh, this afternoon opportunity we have to study your word. Thank you for bringing us together after lots of weeks uh, throughout the summer. And uh, as we resume our study in Romans, Lord, we pray that you'd be with us and guide us, um, guide me as I lead us uh, in our time. And I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I hope you got a sheet. Um, we are just going to resume our study in Romans, uh, right where we're at, Romans 8, 28 through 30, and I would love it if somebody could read those verses, and we'll uh, begin our study. You can read them off the sheet if you want, or from your own copy of the Bible. All right, awesome. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, these are some of the most incredibly encouraging um, verses in the Bible. They're very deep uh, and they're very powerful. What I'd like to do is walk through the text in a teaching fashion first and then go back uh, and ask the questions for discussion. So let's do that. So go to the end of your handout and uh, that's where I basically kind of just walk through the verses. And then uh, I'll just give you my, my kind of take on, on them in a one-way kind of communication. And then let's go back and, and we can pick up the questions that I've written for discussion. All right? So uh, Paul is seeking in these verses, I believe, to give assurance to the people of God of their final salvation. Absolute, rock-solid, unshakable foundation for their hope. So this is all about assurance, about giving Christians a sense of the certainty of our final salvation. Nothing can possibly do that more than these verses. A clear revelation of the unchanging and eternal purpose of God in the final salvation of His elect. The key concept here is His purpose. The concept of the purpose of God. Purpose of Almighty God. The word purpose means His intention his plan, his will. Everything else flows from that. God is a purposeful being, and everything in the universe and in history conforms to that purpose. The alternative has God more in a reactive state, responding to the choices made by angels and humans, reshaping his plans, experimenting with this approach or that approach, but nothing could be further from the truth. God has a purpose in the universe, and specifically a purpose for the human race, and even more specifically, a purpose for the called in this passage, known as the elect in other passages. <clears throat> These verses exist to tell us what that purpose is for the called. It is that they would be finally glorious, conformed 
to the image of Christ. Everything else in history and in the course of their lives fits into this final purpose. Verse 28 shows that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. So God is actively working in even the minutia of the days of history to achieve his final, his ultimate purpose for the called. Verses 29 and 30 then explain more in detail what that final purpose is and the subordinate steps to achieve that purpose, that the called, that is the elect, would be conformed to the image of Christ is the final step of verse 29. That the called would be glorified is the final step of verse 30. It is not hard to see then that conformed to the image of Christ and glorified are equivalent. They're just different ways of saying the same thing. This is clearly then the purpose of Almighty God for the called. This is what he has determined for them. Well, when did God determine this? When did he come to this purpose? Well, other verses, not here in Romans 8, but other verses in the Bible make it plain that God formulated this plan, this purpose for the elect before the foundation of the world or before the world began. Many verses teach this. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So that's Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. There you see the purpose of his will by which he chose us, that is, that we should be the elect, elect means chosen, and that this choosing of a people for himself happened before the foundation of the world. We also see the final end to which the elect are predestined, namely that we should be holy and blameless before him. That seems like just another statement of the same as conform to the image of Christ and glorified. They're just different ways of saying the same thing every time. At any rate, the timing of God's purpose toward the elect is clear. It happened before the foundation of the world. Other passages teach us, 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, God has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Other verses speak of Christ being chosen as the lamb that would be slain, clearly showing that God's plan was from before the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20, You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. So in other words, in that verse, he was chosen to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins before the creation of the world. Uh, and again, Re Revelation 13, 8, all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all's, all whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. In other words, that Jesus knew, God knew that Jesus would die uh, before the creation of the world, before any, anything had happened. So th this sense of the eternal plan of God, a plan completely developed in the mind of God before the world was even created, gives us absolute security. Then all the subordinate steps of our salvation flow from that plan. By the way, the combination of the plan of God and his sovereign power is what gives us absolute security. 
God could have a great plan, but if he doesn't have the power to bring it about, what good is it? But God does have the power to bring it out. Isaiah, bring it about. Isaiah 14, 26 and 27 says, This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? So in that translation, we see uh, almost like poetically, this is the plan, and this is the hand. Plan and hand. The hand is uh, what we call anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a hand. God doesn't have eyes. God doesn't have ears. God doesn't have a body. But the scripture uses this language of the eyes of the Lord, the ear of the Lord, the hand of the Lord, etc., um, to give us a sense of his activity, a sense of his, his working in the world. So when it says his hand is stretched out, that's an exertion of power. Uh, God is exerting power on history. So this is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. And then Isaiah says in the next verse, his hand is stretched out and who can turn it back? No one is strong enough to say no to God. Uh, God is sovereign. So that's Isaiah 14. God's reputation is staked to the final completion of this plan. God is doing it to prove his nature to onlooking creation. Ephesians 3, 10 and 11 says, His intent was it now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is always, with, when it comes to glory, when it comes to God's purpose and all that, a sense of an onlooking audience a sense of created beings, sentient beings, angels and humans who are watching God do things and drawing conclusions. As a matter of fact, one could argue that was God's purpose for creating everything. God didn't need validation. God wasn't insecure. God wasn't lonely. All right? God didn't need anything from his... God never needs anything from his creation. He did it for us. He did it out of love. He did it to give us a sense of his greatness. All right, because that's a gift. He wants us to know how great he is. He wants us to know how wonderful he is. So he did it for the onlooking audience. So in Ephesians 3, God does everything for the onlooking rulers and authorities, etc. That is, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to them. Manifold means uh, variegated or you know, various aspects of God's wisdom. That's what manifold means. And so the idea is that God has lots of different aspects of his wisdom on display before the rulers and authorities so that they could see it. So therefore, if any of the elect are not finally saved, God's reputation will suffer. Do you remember how God threatened to destroy the Israelites in the, in the desert when they were sinning? And Moses had to intercede for them, remember? And do you remember the basis of Moses' intercession is that the, the Egyptians will hear about it? And what would they say? I'm going to read it, but what were they going to say? What will they say about you? That you brought your people out here? You brought them out to kill them. You were not able. God was not able to finish the job. So that's what he says in Numbers 14. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the, this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the desert. Your reputation's going to take a hit, God, if you do that. So don't do that. 
Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you've declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, forgiving in sin and rebellion. By the way, very clear example of this is Rahab the uh, harlot, Rahab the prostitute. She had heard all the reports coming from Egypt. She heard all about it. So Moses wasn't wrong. All these people have heard about what you've done. Now you have, you have to finish the job. Now here's the thing. You get a sense of Moses' zeal for God's glory there. Moses has much less zeal for God's glory than God does. God is very concerned about his reputation, all right? But Moses is just praying in light of that, all right? So here's the thing. If that's true of the physical, physical salvation of the Jews into the physical promised land, how much more would it be true of the spiritual, eternal salvation of the elect finally into heaven? That's a much bigger, much more important final journey than the first one was. The first one was just a type and a shadow and picture of that anyway. It was a picture of salvation. It really happened. It's historical, but I'm just saying it was a picture of salvation. So if any of the elect end up perishing in hell, the universe will note it and say the Lord was not able to bring these people into glory. By the way, I've spoken about this before. Um, like I always picture it in terms of like a youth mission trip or something like that or you know, uh, Fuge or something like that. And uh, let's say 100 of the youth go out there and as they're driving back, the, uh, Kevin Schaub calls and says, we're bringing 97 of the 100 back safely. Uh, how would you feel about that? Would you be comforted that our, our rate of bringing the youth safely back was 97%? Would you be good with that? <laughs> You'd want to know about the three, wouldn't you? Like, like who didn't make it, you know? <laughs> Clearly with good reason. Sometimes only 100% will do. Well, how much more heaven and hell? How much more eternity? So if God sets out to save people, he's going to save them. Uh, he doesn't fail, ever. And so that's what this is all about. And if you look at Romans 8, 28 through 30, I'm not making all this up. This is exactly the logic of the verses. No one drops out. No one that God begins saving don't get, in the end, finally saved. That's the whole point. The focus on this is on God the Father. He is the focus of all of these, uh, these words. Everything here flows from the purpose of God the Father. So many times Christians can focus exclusively on Jesus Christ. I mean, to Christ be the glory. We're not trying to in any way minimize his glory. But the focus here is on God the Father and his, his purpose, his saving intention. And they ignore both the Father and the Spirit. The final salvation of the elect is a Trinitarian work in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have different roles but one ultimate purpose. The Bible reveals that the purpose came from God the Father. It was God the Father that determined to save the elect, God the Father who loved the world and sent his only begotten Son into the world so that the world would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came into the world to do the will of his Father. He says this over and over, very, very plainly. All right. Notice also that God is the central actor in each of these stages. Look again at Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son that, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those, these He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. All of those He's in bold there in my handout all of those refer to God the Father. This is God the Father's action. This is his work from beginning to end, according to these verses. And this, friends, is the basis of our assurance. It all depends on God, and God cannot fail. All right? Uh, note, by the way, this is also logic of a key verse in the next chapter, Romans 9, 11, and 12. Yet before the twins, Jacob and Esau, were born, or had done anything good or bad, 
in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Now, this is a very, very important statement, isn't it? Notice the contract, contrast. Not by works, but by him who calls. The usual contrast we're used to is what? Not by works, but by what? Faith. Faith. Or perhaps not by works, but by grace. But in Romans 9, verse 11, or 12, it says, not by works, but by him who calls. Well, who's the him who calls? We already know the answer to that. Who does the calling here? It's God. It's God. So it's not by works, meaning human works, but by God. Human works are contrasted with God. Human works being self-salvation, where you're trying to save yourself by good works. That's what all the religions of the world are based on. Be a good person, do good works, all that sort of stuff. Not by works, but by God. God's the, God's the hero of this story. God's the savior. He's the actor here. He's the one who does it. That's the purpose of Romans 9, 12. Not by works, but by him who calls. Not by works, but by God. That is God's purpose in election. That's why he does election. Why? So that he gets the credit for salvation. So that no one will boast before him. It says that over and over. God doesn't want to spend eternity with a bunch of arrogant, boastful people who save themselves by their own good works. So he saves all of us in heaven in such a way that we are humbled. When we get to heaven, we'll be giving credit and praise to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit for our salvation, and not to ourselves. There won't be any arrogance, no boasting, none of that. And why is that? Because that is God's purpose in election. God would take over controls and personally fly the plane of our salvation until he has safely landed it at his chosen destination. Only if he does so will we finally be saved. By the way, do you want to take over the controls? Would you like to fly your own salvation? How well do you think you'll do against the world, the flesh, and the devil? Uh, we're going down. But here's the thing. I, I came to faith in Christ October of 1982. I have been assaulted daily since then by the world of flesh and the devil. How is it I still believe in Jesus after all this time? Because I'm such a great person? No. But because God won't let me go. He will finish this salvation work that he began in me. And that's what these verses are about. It's about assurance, all right, fundamentally. Note also, by the way, the certainty of the past tense. This is what I call the prophetic past, all right? The prophetic past giving a sense of absolute uh, certainty, as though it were a done deal. It's as good as done. Like you can imagine some very faithful subordinate when a president or a CEO or uh, you know, some king says, I want X and X Y to be done. And the person says, it's done. Well, it's not done. But what are they saying when they say it's done? I'm absolutely going to do it. Nothing's going to stop it. But here's the thing. No human being really can make that kind of assertion. They might drop dead of a heart attack as they walk out of the throne room. I mean, they, they can't promise anything. But when God says it's done, even though it hasn't happened yet, it's done. And that's what you get with this past tense language of things that haven't happened yet. All right? As if it were a done deal, even though it hasn't happened yet. Those whom God foreknew, he predestined. Uh, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. As though all those things have already happened. Well, we know for a fact that only some of them have happened. 
One of them has absolutely not happened for anybody yet. If you know the list, what is it? Huh? No, no one is glorified. Because glorification, Romans 8 makes it very plain, glorification involves the resurrection of the body from the dead. And that hasn't happened yet, except for Jesus. So no one has been glorified, and yet this verse says he glorified them. So it hasn't happened yet, but it still uses past tense. Do you see that? Why does it use the past tense? What does that teach you when it says those whom he uh, justified, he also glorified? What, why the past tense? Because it's, it's a done deal, even though it's not. And again, God doesn't see time. I mean, he rolls up time like a scroll. Like he, he's there. Right. But he wants us to know. It's for us. These words are written for us that we would know it's a done deal. Did he know it's a done deal? He knows better than we do. He knows how strong he is. He knows how powerful he is. He knows his enemies. He knows that nothing can stop him. Do we know that? Not like we should. And that's the purpose of tonight's Bible study. That's the purpose of these verses, is to give us that confidence. All right? Uh, by the way, Isaiah uh, 53 also has this kind of past tense language. Isaiah 53 was written seven centuries before Jesus was born, but it uses this past tense. All right? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That was written seven centuries before Jesus was born. God hadn't laid anything on Jesus yet, right? But he uses that prophetic past tense to give us a sense of absolute certainty. This is a done deal, even though it hasn't happened yet, okay? Uh, finally, notice the group of people he's talking about in Romans 8, 28 through 30, all get the same treatment. Nobody gets part of it. Everybody who gets the one gets all of it. Okay? Jim, are you going to say something? No, no, okay. I'm thankful for it. All right, praise God. We get the whole thing. No one drops out. Everyone whom, you could just drop that in. For everyone whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Son. And everyone whom he predestined, God called. And everyone whom God called, he also justified. And everyone whom God justified, he also glorified. Everybody. The image I get here is of, uh, of an experience I had in Japan on uh, uh, the bullet train, the Shinkansen. It's a magnetic levitation train that uh, goes from Tokyo to, uh, in my case, went down to Osaka. So this thing's fast. And let me tell you something. It's so computer-controlled and all that. They, they you know, arrive to the split second of when they say I mean, because nothing, nothing can stop it. I mean, there's no animals on the track. It's just absolute prote protected track. There's nothing that can, nothing can cross it, et cetera. It's just a magnetic levitation track. All right, here's the thing. Everyone that gets on gets off. All right, how do you get off? I mean, you're not, it's going 300 miles an hour. So I picture it that way. When you get on this train, you're going to be on it until it's time to get off. And everybody that got on gets off. Does that make sense? That's the image I have. There's no one that drops out along the way. And that's pretty encouraging. All of this gives absolute certainty of our final salvation. So that's my kind of teaching outline. Any comments before we get into the questions? We're going to walk through it in question form, but... Any comments, questions? That I have experienced. It's a lot of people that don't really know what the scripture is teaching. Take the first sentence. We know that all that God all caused all things to work together for good, and they stop there. Mm -hmm. 
And that's not true for everybody. It isn't true for everybody. We know it's not true for everybody. A very good example of this is Judas Iscariot. Jesus said it would have been better for him if he had never been born. So he's a good example of, of someone for whom this verse is not true. But the verse isn't saying it's true of everybody. What does the verse say it is true for? For what people is verse true? Love him. The people who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then he's going to tell us what his purpose is, right? He's talking about the elect. So for the elect, God causes everything to work together for good, not for Judas Iscariot. Okay, and I think Judas then is a symbol of a whole bunch of people for whom God does not cause everything to work together for good. But that's a different matter for Romans 9. We'll get into that in Romans 9 a lot more. Okay, well, let's, any other initial comments or questions before we walk through it? Okay, now this is where you guys kick in. You've all been listening to me talk the whole time. Now it's time for you. Main questions. What does this section teach us about the sovereignty of God and salvation? How do you see sovereignty here? It's all him. Okay. There's nothing left to doubt. He's completely in control. What does that word mean, sovereignty? I mean, we use that word a lot, but what does it mean? Sovereignty. There's rule. Okay, rule. Okay. Pictures like a kingship, I think. Anyone else on sovereignty? Self-defining. Okay, God is a, he's self-defining. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, if God is sovereign, it means when he gives a command, it, it's obeyed. It gets done. I mean, I mean, think about the Roman centurion, remember, who um, told Jesus he didn't have to come to his home and just say the word, my servant will be healed, Remember? Remember the reason why? He said, for I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he do does it. Jesus says, I've not found on anyone in Israel with such great faith. You, you, this centurion knows exactly how things work in the universe. When God gives a command, it gets done. It just gets, it just gets done. When Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, what happened? Well, a census was taken of the entire Roman world. That's how the Roman Empire worked. All right, well, how much more God? When God says X will happen, it happens. That's what sovereignty means. All right? What is the significance of the concept that God causes all things to work together for good in the lives of the elect? What, is, what does that mean to you? God causes all things to work together. What's the significance of that teaching? Significant to me because some things on the face of them in this life don't look good to me. Okay. Right, like a death of a loved one or right. a tragedy or something like that. So it's almost the idea that God would have to cause that because it's not mm. going that way in its own direction. So I would say definitely suffering. People push back because of suffering. Um, another example maybe we wouldn't think about is just tiny minutia that doesn't seem to matter. I mean, why would God cause that to work together for good? You know, little things like that. Another category would be uh, human sinfulness, our sins. Does God cause our sins to work together for good? You know, those kind of things. Why is, th why is this teaching comforting? Romans 8, 28 it's, it could be very comforting. So I was watching uh, some news articles on the Burning Man uh, fiasco, right, out in California. And Tell me about that. I don't know. Uh, it's just a big orgy. It's basically what it is. And, and but it got rained on and, and the whole thing turned into a soupy swamp, right? Mm. 
And so people who had shown up to engage in a lot of carnal behavior, you know, had a real, you know, I would say judgment, you know, mm -hmm. fall on this. But what was interesting at the end of all that and all the interruption to the, to you can, what you can imagine be very displeasing activities to the God, there was a very beautiful rainbow at the end of that while these people were, you know, trying to evacuate and get out and, and just get out of there. And so I saw God just sovereignly working a measure of justice and mercy at the same time. Think about all of the, 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 the carnal behavior that didn't happen because of those conditions and ultimately just the witness of, of, his, of his symbol of mercy, right? And the rainbow coming through. So there's just that sovereignty of being able to, to judge and discipline and redirect and yet extend mercy. That, is, that was a real sovereign. Because yeah. that's not what I would have done. I'd have wiped them all out. Right? Yeah. I hadn't heard about any of that. Powerful. How, how would this idea, just speak about yourself. How would it give you comfort to know that God causes all things to work together for good? For you. You can't figure out in any conceivable way how anything's going to work out. Mm -hmm. You can rest assured that God does. Mm. Okay. God's already worked out the plan. The details are part of it. So we should be joyful, thankful, and in, in everything. You know, it's, it's hard to figure out sometimes. But we should be characterized by that. Very good. Uh, we can talk more about it. These are just main questions, and I go through the details in a minute. According to this section, what is the ultimate goal of our salvation? Just according to these verses here, what is the ultimate goal? Our glorification. Our, our glorification. Okay. What does that mean, glorification? Secure in heaven with Christ as, as he is, in his, in his state of being. Okay. Finally, rid of all our sin. Say again. Finally, rid of all our sin. Rid of all of our sin, all the effects of our sin. Okay. To reflect that everything is the glory of God. Okay. I think one of my favorite verses on glorification is Jesus' statement uh, in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. It says, And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Uh, what does that mean to you? Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. We will literally be as bright as the sun, as Christ is. Yeah, ourselves. And and you could think about that. How would that be? But keep in mind that the angel that came to announce the birth of Jesus sh uh, shone with the glory of God. Remember how all these shepherds were terrified because of the light. So we should not think it's that far-fetched. And remember that when Moses went into the presence of God, he came out of the presence, his face was shining so much that he had to cover it with a veil. So the idea is consistent that we ourselves will emanate a, a, a light that comes from us. Um, we'll shine like the sun, glor glorification. We will ourselves be glorious. Just so you know, the three words that we usually use in that same kind of Latin, Latinist pattern is justification, sanctification, glorification. Um, all of those are based on a Latin root means to make. And so you would say justification is to make us just or righteous sanctification is to make us holy and glorification is to make us glorious those are the three st stages so that god would actually make us glorious that's the final um, step of our salvation 
How um, do these verses help us grow in, in our certainty of attaining that final goal? So it's, it, when I say certainty, I mean uh, assurance. What does assurance mean to you, the word assurance or certainty? To know without a doubt. Why is that important? Do you, do you agree that these verses are given to the church, to given to Christians, to give us assurance? They're, they're working assurance in us. They're working confidence in us. All right, well, the question is why. Why does God want us to have that? He wants us to have absolute, total assurance that we will end up glorious in heaven. Seems to be the purpose of these verses, right? Why does he want us to have that? Doubt is so strong. I okay. think he wanted to shield us from some of that. Doubt is strong, that's true. Yeah, not everybody thinks it's a good thing to have this kind of assurance, this kind of confidence, right? Some people think that we'll, uh, we'll use it wrongly. How could, how could some people think that assurance is a bad thing for Christians to have? It's actually not good for us to have assurance of final salvation. Why would some people make that argument? Is it antinomianism? Is that what that's called? Or you'll, you'll think that you can do whatever, you'll just be able to, yeah. And, yeah, yes, I think so. Antinomian means you're throwing off the law. So at that point, it doesn't matter how you live. So it, it tends toward immorality. Assurance, the argument would go, assurance tends toward immorality, towards wickedness. Because you just, well, it's, it's kind of like you see sometimes with these, um, these uh, uh, wealthy sons of like oil magnates or whatever that buy like unbelievably expensive cars in London and crack them up and then buy another one the next day kind of thing. They think that you're going to live like that, right? Because you've got impunity, you've got diplomatic immunity, you've got limitless money, and you have just no responsibility. That's how they think. I'm talking about the theologians that would say assurance is a bad thing. All right? But God doesn't think that assurance is a bad thing. He doesn't think it'll be dangerous for you to be so assured of your salvation. Clearly, because he gave you these verses. He doesn't want you to read, read these and think, 50% assurance is what I'm coming to at this. It's that, that I don't get that out of these verses, right? It's like, eh, I'm, I'm a little more confident than I used to be because I read these verses. I don't sense that's the purpose of these verses, right? It's like, no, I want you to be absolute rock-solid, guaranteed, assured that you're going to be glorified when you die. So he doesn't seem to think that it's a dangerous thing for Christians to be assured. Keep in mind, this is in the middle of a long, complex chapter and section on us dealing with indwelling sin and all that sort of thing. It's not like God doesn't know about all that. I'm sorry, one of you. Yeah, go ahead, Stephanie. Um, well, it helps us to glorify him as we think about how powerful he is and able to keep us all the way. Um, and also, I think it can make us more bold for God because we can be fearless about the future. Yeah. Look at the fourth main question. Why is our certainty of our final salvation so important in the way we live our Christian lives? Why is being absolutely certain that you're going to end up sinless in heaven, how does it help you live a good Christian life now? You won't fear the consequences of living faithfully and not compromising here on earth. Okay. No fear. No fear of the consequences of such a holy life. Very good get strength of the journey you're in process I and mean, he talks about sapiens at the space of the age we're groaning the other is groaning 
uh, we are weak in prayer, the Holy Spirit has to help us, you know, in the context of all of that, you have no fear because God is working and God will get it done. Praise God. Now, uh, let's talk about what we're discussing here. It's right in the middle of section, Romans 6, 7, 8, um, and Paul says in 2 Timothy, I fought the good fight, finished the race, kept the faith. What is fighting the good fight? Well, I would contend that you could argue that there's a two journeys aspect, an internal journey of fighting the good fight and an external journey aspect of fighting the good fight. The internal journey is personal holiness. Is it a good fight to go after personal holiness? Is it a fight at all? Do you guys find it a fight? It's a war. I told you that I've been assaulted by the world of flesh and the devil every day of my Christian life. Do you think I'm overstating? Have you not been also assaulted every day of your Christian life by the same enemies? So it is a fight. How important is it to an army to have good morale and believe in their ultimate final victory while they're fighting the next battle? How important is morale to an army, would you say? Critical. If you're absolutely certain you're going to lose, do you think you're going to fight well? Now, you're probably going to capitulate. You're probably going to seek terms. And that's frankly what you do with sin when you yield to it. You're capitulating. You're waving the white flag. You're, you're seeking terms. You can't seek terms with Satan and with the flesh. But if you believe you're going to end up radiantly glorious with no sin at all, I think you'll fight better. You'll put sin to death better. You'll be more confident in that warfare because you know you're going to win. And every effort you make toward holiness will be rewarded and successful in the end. Does that make sense? So I think God wants us to have that because we fight better. All right, so that's the main questions. Let's go verse by verse with the time that we have left. Paul begins by speaking of what we know. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Let me just stop you right there. How do we know that? That's quite a statement, Paul. Oh, we know. Now, one thing we definitely know is that God works, God causes all things to work together for good. Why would he make such a statement? And on what basis can we know that God causes all things to work together for good other than that Paul, the apostle, just wrote that? But he seems like we already knew it. Go ahead. He's sovereign. God is sovereign. Okay. So it has to happen. So the God of the Bible, just studying what God has done in the Bible should give us that confidence. Right? Do you guys, do you guys agree? Any other thoughts on how we know that God causes all things to work together for good? We know his character. We know his word. Thousands of years of prophetic mm-hmm. uh, words coming to truth okay. to, to, to pass so we can know it especially from scripture we can we can have some sense of it by looking at creation but especially scripture yeah i think the holy spirit also helps us to know it. okay very good i like it what we've been saying is within most of the christianity that i know it's very few that that will say say this uh, and and uh, how can we say the Holocaust brought about good I mean now that Jews moved back to Israel that started how about the war in Ukraine right now all the people the people that are being killed and beside civilians and soldiers yeah. and uh, I don't I have a hard time believing all that's working for good. It is hard, and I don't minimize, don't minimize that, that suffering. For me as a Christian, 
you were to ask me as a Christian, what would you say is the most evil thing that's ever happened in human history? What do you think I would say? The most evil thing that's ever happened in history. Crucifixion of Christ. I agree. That's what I would say. Why would I argue that the crucifixion of Jesus is the most evil thing that's ever happened in history? He was sinless. He was sinless. He's the only one. And he suffered a horrible death through overt, clear injustice. Because Pontius Pilate declared again and again, I find no fault in him. He didn't do anything wrong. And yet, he was killed. So it's overt injustice. And then all the more, if you realize who he was and what, what he'd done, the kind of life he, he had lived and who he was, son of God, and all that, it's the most evil thing. Did God cause that to work together for good? Yeah. It's the clearest example of this. The way we know is especially by looking at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But you can only see it by faith, though, because I can see in my mind's eye the fulfillment in Revelation 7-9 of a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation standing, wearing white robes and holding palm branches around the throne of God in heaven saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I can see the outcome. Jesus said, for the joy that was set before him, he went through the cross. What is the joy? That. Salvation of a huge multitude from every nation on earth. So in that way, this verse is absolutely true. A very wicked, evil thing, God used it for good. Now, is it easier or harder to argue that the same thing would be true of the Holocaust? I think it's more emotionally charged for some people. But the principle is still there, isn't it? It's not like there's just a section, there's sections of history where God just doesn't do anything with them, right? The, the universe is just too complex for that. I believe in an interwoven matrix of history in which everything's woven together in complexities in ways that we can scarcely imagine. And God's not taking the, the year off or, ta or that section of real estate. He didn't do anything with that or didn't know what was going on. We can't imagine that. So I, I know it's emotionally charged. I'm, I, if you're asking me what's the best way to articulate it to some Jewish people that are arguing about like Elie Wiesel or something like that, that's a different matter. But the theology is going to stay the same, isn't it? We're not like changing the theology because of Auschwitz. We're just trying to find the best way to articulate the truth behind it. Any other comments about it? It's not a, minim, a minor thing that we're talking about here. It's very significant. And then the distinction is that not everything is good. That God works, that everything works for the good of those who are Right. That's a good distinction. Can you tell me more about that? Not everything is good, but he causes it to work for good. So tell me more. Not that we, he's not asking us to validate morally in Holocaust. No, to, to be convinced, to persuade that for believers, that worked for good in, in ways that I do not know specifically, but individually, because it took like original woman, we look at her ministry. That, that's a particular example, but not the other one, perhaps. Yep. And uh, it's complicated to see that, but uh, yeah, really, that really important for, for those who are called of God. There's always good in every situation for them. For this way. Yeah, God is working in it. All right. Well, let's take another example, um, maybe a, a lesser case, but maybe still something we could figure out. What would you say is the most evil thing that David, King David, ever did? Bathsheba. Kill, yeah, sleeping with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah to cover it up. Did anything good come out of all that? Solomon. Yeah, did anything good come out of Solomon? Well, yeah, we got some books of the Bible here that you know have been beneficial to, to us. How many people have been benefited by Proverbs? 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. I find that helpful. <laughs> right? I find it helpful. How about Ecclesiastes? That's eh, a different matter. But it's in the Bible and it has a role to play. And God wanted it in there. Song of Solomon, we'll talk about another time. You know, but it's in there. God used Solomon. And plus, Solomon's in Jesus' genealogy. Right? So would we say it was a good thing that he slept with another man's wife and then killed him to cover it up? No, it was evil. Like you said, it was a bad thing. But he caused it to work together for good. Here's another lesser case, much lesser case. How would you describe the argument between Paul and Barnabas? How would you describe that? Well, it, it started, it, it, missionary journeys came out of it instead yeah. of one. Yeah, he, he broke up with Barnabas and went his own way with Silas, right? South Baptist churches. <laughs> Whole denominations have started that way. Almost certainly true. But yeah, I mean, God, I mean, the argument between Paul and Barnabas, I do not consider to be a good thing in and of itself. It's like the two of them should have been able to work it out. Keep in mind, all conflict is not like the Trinity. There won't be any arguments in heaven, right? We will be as one as the Father and the Son are one. We will not disagree with each other at all. So the fact that Paul and Barnabas disagreed is sin. Now we can try to guess at who was right and who was wrong, etc., but they were both wrong to some degree. It was a bad thing, but good came out of it. That's all. And, and so these are the principles that we're looking at, God causing these things to work together. We, we know it because uh, of the knowledge of God. Now, verse 28 um, has a tremendous scope. It refers to all things, all things that happen to us in our lives. Is there a limit to this? Does all really mean all? Or does it mean just generally God works in most things sufficiently to get us to heaven? How do we understand the word all? God causes all things. All means all. That's all, so that, that's all that it means. All right, that's easy. God causes all things to work together for good. Well, what if there were exceptions? Suppose he caused 95% of the stuff in your life to work together for good, and 5% God couldn't really do anything with it. <laughs> I mean, how would you understand that? I mean, is it even possible to consider of a partial truth of this? Um, if not, I'll just move on. Let me ask you a, a more poignant question. Do you really act day to day like you believe this verse? Think about how you reacted over the last month to things that you heard that weren't your favorite thing. Can you give me an example? You don't have to tell tales on yourself, but some news or something that happens to you that it's possible that you didn't react as though you believe this verse. Or maybe you know somebody who might have not reacted like they believe this verse. What would be an example in abstraction of reacting in such a way that you don't seem to believe this verse? The doctor telling you you have cancer. Okay, that would be an example. And the news isn't so much, it's the reaction to it. So what would be the reaction of somebody who doesn't seem like they believe this verse? Hopeless. Despair. What are some other emotions that tend to go toward denial? Uh, Anger toward, toward God. How could you let something like this happen to me? So that would be, you know, a sense of that, of people out there, not in this room, mind you, but out there that would occasionally react to things that happen to them as though they don't believe this verse. I had a friend that once reacted badly to some news that they heard uh, that it seemed like, at least for a moment, they didn't seem to believe Romans 8.28. Um, at any rate, it seems like 
I know for myself, and I've said this before, I wrote a book on Christian contentment, and Christian contentment, the themes in Christian contentment are very much tied to this verse as well, aren't they? To be able to be content no matter what happens to you in your life, right? To, be, to, to learn the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or in want, would be tied to, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. They're tied together. But I've said this before, I don't know any author that's ever written a book that so needed to read his own book and take it to heart as me when it comes to that book of contentment. I am often discontent. It's a problem. And you may find the same thing for yourselves. So. I would say that after preaching for over 50 years, reading this and loving this verse, I didn't see what you brought out tonight. I didn't see it. And uh, I don't think I don't think this is well known in the Baptist church or any denomination. I just don't, it's not, it's not being taught. Well, I would say this. Jesus said to the Sadducees who denied the resurrection, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And I think that comes to bear on this verse, doesn't it? People are in error because they don't know this verse and they don't know the power behind it. So that's a good word. Thank you for sharing that. Um, does, does this include our sins? Does God cause our sins to work together for good for us personally? We, we already said all things, but you already said not everything is good, so our sins are not good. How would, how would you say God uses our sins to work together for our own good? I wouldn't go out and sin more to invite that kind of good work. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No, we've already rejected that, but go ahead. Okay. It's very humbling. I actually do believe that this is one of the reasons why God forbids recent converts from being leaders in the church, from being elders. They need to lose. They need to sin. Not that the, anything good comes from sin, but when you sin and you need to ask forgiveness and you're broken by it and you see the struggle that it is to fight sin and you have to, you, you have to struggle with that, it says in Hebrews 5, you're able to deal gently with people because you're subject to the same weakness. But if you haven't had a lot of losses, you th you're triumphalistic, you're arrogant, and you can crush people. So that's a, at least a theory I have on why God doesn't want recent converts to be elders. Um, it's very clear in the context he doesn't want them arrogant. But what, what would cause somebody to not be arrogant anymore? I think it would be some losses, <laughs> some humbling times where you have to ask. Do you think Peter was humbled by denying Jesus three times before the rooster crowed? Do you think he was taken down a few pegs? Do you think Peter needed to be taken down a few pegs to be a better pastor, better apostle? I think so. So we would say even Peter's denial worked together for his own good because he had made the statement earlier that evening, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. That means he's number one of all the followers of Jesus on planet Earth. I think a guy like that needs to be humbled, and guess what? He was humble. It was very, very tough. All right. Um, let's move on. Does, uh, we've already said this, but for what people does God cause all things to work together for good? We've already said this, but it's worth repeating. What does the verse say? For whom does he do this? For everybody or for just a group of people? And who, how does he describe them? Those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Are there some people that love him but are not called according to his purpose and there are others that are called according to his purpose but that don't love him or are they the same people? 
they're the same people. It's just different ways of saying the same thing. Everybody that genuinely loves God, and I say this clearly, you cannot love God in the way that this, the first great commandment, first and greatest commandment refers to, without the working of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's just not possible. As a matter of fact, when I preach on that in a number of weeks, God willing, I'm going to quote Charles Spurgeon, and he was talking about it. He said, this is law. It's the law, isn't it? Isn't it the first and greatest commandment? Isn't that law? You think you can be saved by obeying the law? Spurgeon said you would be as likely to find the highest peak in the Himalayas and you use it as a vaulting step to get up to the moon. That's typical Spurgeon, by the way. In other words, you can't do it. You haven't done it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, if you genuinely do love him, it's because God has worked it in you by the Holy Spirit. You are called according to the purpose of God. So, it's only for those people. God isn't causing all things to work together for good for everyone. Do we know for a fact that everyone that we talk to, that we could say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, in one sense, yes, but if they're reprobate, okay, Romans 9, reprobate, what would be the wonderful plan, God's wonderful plan for their life? If they're reprobate. Eternal damnation. I don't think we would use that language in normal conversation. God's wonderful plan for your life is that you burn in hell forever and ever. So I don't like that beginning to the four spiritual laws. I don't want to start that way. I would find different verbiage. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they are. They're just humans. I hope that they're part of the wonderful plan. If they come to faith in Christ, I will be able to say, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with the power, Holy Spirit, and deep conviction, 1 Thessalonians. If they cross over from death to life and tell me they love Jesus and they get water baptized and they start living a Christian life, I'll call them elect. By the way, it doesn't matter if I call them elect and I'm wrong. Okay, It won't do them any, any harm or good because I'm not their judge. I just know that Paul does call them elect, 1 Thessalonians 1, because of the changes he saw in their lives. Does that make sense? So we can do that kind of thing. All right, now, what is the connection? We have five more minutes. Let's use them. What's the connection between verse 28 and 29? Do you see a connection at all? Someone read verse 28 and the beginning of verse 29. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he has, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Okay, so do you see a connection, a verbal connection between verse 28 and 29 that links them together? Knowing. Okay. How does verse 28 end? His purpose. His purpose. What do the words his purpose have to do with verse 29? Anything? Conform to his image. Predestined. Would you say verse 29 is his purpose? Verse 29 and 30 exp explicates or unfolds his purpose. This is his purpose. This is what his purpose is. What is his purpose? Salvation resulting in final glorification. That is his purpose. So he basically is saying, I want to tell you what his purpose is. Now let me explain it theologically. Let me explain what his purpose is. So that's the link I see between verse 28 and 29. How do you know there's a link? 
How does verse 29 begin? For, that tells you there's a link. So whenever you see the word for, that's a logical link. The reason we know is because off we go. So there's a link between the two, all right? Now, verse 29 and 30 represent a chain of actions on God's part. In every case, God acts on a group of people. What verbs does, God, uh, does Paul ascribe to God in verses 29 and 30? What verbs do you see? Predestined. Let's start. What's the first one in verse 29? Foreknew. So the first thing in verse 29 is the foreknowledge of God. Foreknew. All right, next. What's next? After foreknew comes what? Predestined. Then what? Be conformed. That's the ultimate end. Yes. And what else? Called. The calling. God does the calling. And then what? He does the justifying. And then, finally, glorified. So those are all the verbs. Now, what people is God doing this for? Do some get the one and some get the other and some get two of them but not the other three? Or what is, it, what is the logic of this verse? If you get one of these, what could you say? You, got all of them. you get them all. So if, for example, in this sense of this, God foreknows you, you're going to get the whole list. The whole list. He doesn't start with a group and then some drop out. That's the point. So everyone that gets foreknown ends up glorified. Everyone. That's, that's the point. And that's the assurance here. Do you see? That's how the assurance works. Is nobody drops out. Or as Philippians says, he who began a good work and you will carry it on to completion. What is completion? These verses tell us what completion is. Conformed to the image of his son or glorified. That's completion. He's going to keep working on you until you're complete. Perfect. So that's pretty awesome. All right, now. We have one minute to discuss foreknowledge. How exciting is that? Is there any possibility that people would have differing views of foreknowledge, that they would understand it differently, that whole theological systems can be based on different understanding of foreknowledge? All right, what would be one way to look at foreknowledge and what would be a different way of looking at foreknowledge? So what would be one way to, what, what does it even mean, foreknow, foreknowledge? To know something ahead of time. Okay? So what would be one approach to this in terms of knowing something ahead of time? You think God just sees the future like a fortune teller but doesn't control it. He doesn't, he's not in control of it, but he knows who they are. Before the world began, he knew who would be what and whatever, and based on what they will eventually do, which he knows mysteriously, he chooses them. Would, would you say that makes God an actor or reactor in that system? He's actually reacting to something he knows someone will do. So he's reacting to them, not acting on them. Does that make sense? Even though they don't exist yet. But that's how they see it, okay? It's that God foreknows things about the people. You see what I'm saying? Specifically that they'll have faith in Jesus. That is the Arminian system. That's how it works. True, thoroughgoing, Bible-believing Arminians believe in predestination. They have to. Why do I say they have to? Bible-believing Arminians have to believe in predestination. Because it's here. Right? You can't throw it out. But what they say is foreknowledge precedes it. Is that true? Does foreknowledge in this verse precede predestination? 
It does. All right, now here's the thing. Does the verse say that God foreknows things about people, or does it say something else? Read it carefully. What does it say? For those whom he foreknew. He doesn't foreknow things about people. He foreknows people. Is there a difference between those two? What would you say is the difference? Jose, what's the difference between God foreknowing things about people and God foreknowing people? He knows okay, the action of the people. The people themselves. All right. So is there a sense in which God is saying, I know you, but he's saying to other people, I don't know you. Is there a sense in which God doesn't know people? I think there absolutely is. And as a matter of fact, if you look at, at Matthew 7... Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never, what? Knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Oh, wait a minute. I thought you said you didn't know me. Oh, I know all about you. I know you're evildoers. But I don't know you. And that's what we're talking about here. God knowing people. Go ahead, Stephanie. Does foreknowing have something to do with the choosing? Yes. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. And on that note, we're going to stop tonight. <laughs> I'm sorry. Finish your thought. Finish your thought. Go ahead. I mean, is that what it means? Like I think that basically he equivalent. knows you, he is making you chosen. I think so. I mean, think of it this way. How significant is the whole knowing thing in our relationship with God? It's so significant that Jesus defines eternal life that way. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So that's us knowing God. The reverse side is, is the other side of it, God knowing us. And I, I think it's powerful. It's, it's similar to the, the sexual verse where it says, Adam knew Eve and she conceived and gave birth to a son, Cain, remember? Or Mary saying, how is it possible for me to have a baby I, since I don't know a man? That's literally what it says in the Greek. I don't know a man. Oh, you know all kinds of men. I thought you knew Joseph. He's your, let me introduce you to Joseph. He's your fiance. No, 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 that's not what I mean. What does she mean when she says, I don't know a man? I've not had sexual relationship, but the, the Bible uses the euphemism of knowing. I think that's related to this whole thing. God knows us like a husband knows his wife, knows us in a covenant relationship before the foundation of the world. That's the essence, Stephanie, I think, of election. So yes, I think they are coterminous. I think they're the same thing. The Arminian scheme is just that God makes good predictions about people. And based on his predictions, he reacts to their foreseen faith and then chooses them. No, that's not necessarily the fair, right? The Arminian trying to be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah no. like the, 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 the Arminian would say that how could an all-knowing God not know? You, you make it sound, it, how can an omnipotent God that transcends time not know certain things about him? Well, he does. See, I would say uh, a Reformed or a Calvinistic view t accepts both. We believe that God knows minute details about every creature before any of them are born. We're not denying that. But what we're saying is that this foreknowing isn't that. It's not a prediction of future actions. It's more of a covenant relationship that God has with a people before they're born. So, And believe me, it's not, not my desire to put up straw men and destroy them. There's, it's not helpful to do that. I want to find the best possible way to understand these verses. So let's pick this up, God willing, next time. Um, thank you for being here tonight.
Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.